You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So hi everyone and welcome to another amazing episode of Changing Reality. Welcome one, welcome all. If this is your first time to the show, where have you been? This is the place to be. And if you have been watching the show, thank you guys for tuning in again. We love our audience. You guys are amazing. And we enjoy these conversations with you here as well. So for all of you who may be new, Changing Reality is a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are, in essence, changing their own reality. And through the show, we'll be hanging out and interviewing social change makers, entrepreneurs, business leaders, to even artists, musicians, and inspiring individuals from all across the world, and many of whom have spent some time here on the Penn campus as well. And by hearing their inspiring stories on how they are changing the reality through the things that they do, through the experiences that they've had, hopefully it'll inspire us a little bit to try our own causes and figure out what we can do to live the life that we want. And I wanted to do this show simply because I am a huge believer in stories. And I feel like there are a lot of people out there who do phenomenal things, make waves in the lives of those around them. And I'm passionate about learning these stories so that hopefully we'll be able to replicate some of those experiences, replicate or at least shorten the learning curve of our own journeys in a sense. And the power of stories has always been something that I have been a true believer in. I actually founded my entire business and, and my entire social enterprise on the power of stories. Personally, I actually founded and run a youth movement uh, back home in Malaysia, where we started, uh, which today collaborates with over 35,000 students, works with our Malaysian Ministry of Education, um, as well as global education partners to provide an alternative education platform for any student who wants to change their reality. From elementary all the way up to college, through various sessions, programs, experiential learning sessions, and at the same time, helping these students incubate their own careers in things that they are passionate about. And as I said, we've been lucky to work with 35,000 students, 28 countries, two, uh, I think 900 over schools, 1,000 over teachers, and have incubated social projects and social uh, enterprises run by kids as young as eight years old to 25. And this basis of all of that has been stories has been kind individuals who've taken their time to share their experiences, share what they love, what they've been gone through in a sense, so that others can learn from them. And just like that, I hope that this show, for all of you guys watching today, is that same platform for you, so that you can take away the things that you need to go out there and live your dreams yourself. So if there's anything specific you want to talk about, any topics, any experiences, any industries, let us know in the chat below and we'll try to take as many of them as we can and hopefully help you, at least in some small way, change your reality. So our speaker today is someone who is extremely amazing. I've had so many brilliant conversations about his experiences that have inspired me in a sense. He is the founder and chief investment officer at Whitwell & Co, a boutique investment management and financial planning firm. He also helps lead the overall firm and its investment practices, while also is a sought after advisor and business funding expert that serves different makers at the intersection of health, wealth, and purpose. He's someone who started his career working alongside some of the most globally respected uh, organizations and bankers from uh, Goldman Sachs, Credit Suisse, and many others as well. He's worked in New York City, London, Hong Kong, Tokyo, and has had a first-hand understanding of global markets and multicultural work environments. Most importantly, for many of us here, he's also a graduate at the Wharton School of Business here at the University of Pennsylvania, and has had so many other amazing qualifications to that. 
He serves as well on the Long Center Corporate Advisory Board, the Baylor Scott and White Development Advisory Board, and was previously a social venture partner at Mission Capital. But honestly, from my conversations with him, he's helped me understand a little bit more about what I'm doing right and wrong as an entrepreneur, the conversations that I should be happening. And as I speak to him, I thought, okay, we have to get him on the show so that you guys can learn from these phenomenal experiences as well. So without further ado, let's welcome our phenomenal speaker for today onto our virtual stage. Hello there. How are you? <laughs> Good. Hello, Harsha. Thank you for having me on today. Well, as I said, I really appreciate you being on the show. I think we were just talking that you were having a very busy week traveling here and there. So thank you for making the time. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been crazy busy, but uh, always fun to, to jump on and uh, catch up and been looking forward to, uh, to today. All right. So this is the show where we essentially get all the behind the scenes stories. So get ready for, for, for some, um, some hopefully tough questions. But we'll start off with an easy one in a way. Uh, one of the things that I mentioned in the intro is that you were actually a student here at Penn uh, back when you first started your career, when you were an undergrad like many of us. And as from the introduction, we can tell you've done so many phenomenal things, worked at some of the top countries, worked across the world, have your own organization now that you run in a sense and advise companies and, and individuals in their own finances. So obviously you've been incredibly successful in the many things that you've done. Did you know that this was the path for you? Did you have all of this charted out back when you were a lost, confused undergrad or, or someone like us back in college in a way? Was, was this part of some grand plan you had since kindergarten? Like this is the way life is going? Or were you like as confused as us? Yeah. Well, it's funny looking back on it, I'd say I had no clue. Uh, but if you would have asked me at the time, I had everything planned out. <laughs> really? Well, how did the plan, the plan then look compared to the plan now? Was, was it at least similar yeah. or? I say the word plan very loosely. I think it had more to do with rebellion uh, and search for independence than anything. Um, I, uh, both my parents are academics, teachers, music teachers, and uh, I grew up in LA. And you know, my decision process was um, was was pretty simple. Uh, you know, I looked at a map and I'm like, okay, my parents are on the left. What's on the right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, in, in, uh, again, kind of crazy, but you know, I'm like, okay, so my parents are academics. I don't want to be like them. I want to be different. Uh, what's the opposite of academic? Ah, oh, it must be business. Uh, um, so I'm like, yeah, I want to go to business school, but I couldn't have told you what, what that meant exactly. Other than, um, you know, I enjoyed working in different jobs, enjoyed making money, um, uh, meeting people, but I had no idea. I had no clue exactly what, what I'd end up doing. And even when I got to Penn, I found out I didn't even know what a lot of the career tracks were. Like I had no idea what consulting was, management consulting. I had no idea what investment banking was. And, and the way people would describe it, like didn't make it any easier for me. Right. I'd be like, so what's investment banking? I mean, I knew what banks were, but what's investment banking? And they're like, oh, it's where, you know, after you graduate, you spend 80 hours a week in a you know, in a room staring at a computer the whole day, uh, working on spreadsheets. I'm like, oh, okay, that doesn't sound very fun. <laughs> uh, but of course, that's what I ended up doing. Uh, so life can be very unpredictable uh, in fun ways. And, uh, um, you know, some of the things that I've done has been intentional, but there have definitely been some things that have come about kind of organically and, and randomly as well. 
No, but I feel like that's the most relatable after high school story ever. It's like, what, where are my parents? What did they do? How do I do the exact opposite? I mean, <laughs> I, I know at least like a dozen other people who, who are on that track and are, and are probably feeling valid, very validated by this interview in a way. Well, as a dad now, that, that logic drives me crazy, right? Right. I want, oh, I want to, 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 to listen to my advice and, you know, uh, but that, you know, it, and so I've got three teens right now and, and they're doing what teens do, right. They're spreading their wings. They're figuring out who do I want to be. And, uh, um, one of the big challenges for me as a parent is just letting go and, and giving them that free space to, to find their own path and, and not getting too worked up when sometimes they do the same thing, you know? Like, hey, I'm not going to do what dad's doing or whatever. <laughs> You're not showing them this interview in a way. They, they, they don't know this, uh, like this opposite story. Okay, that, that's a little scary. But maybe you should try like like just telling them like, do not go into business. And then they'll, they'll just have Yeah, to that's right. Try negative psychology. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All the parents, take note. Why Wharton and Penn? Like, again, yes, it's the best business school in a sense. Did you think... How do I be the best? How do I do this? Or, or what kind of got you into it? I mean, yeah. I so the, the, the truth is, really, the truth, the truth is really ridiculous. And and again, it starts from that super simplistic, uh, you know, what's on the left, what's on the right uh, story of mine. Um, but you know, so what happened is, it, 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 crazy as it is, um, we didn't have internet back then, right? You just had library resources and. And so there was definitely more an element of, of chance, I think, in terms of who you knew or, who, you know, what what you were exposed to. And I kid you not, I first found out about Wharton from some kid walking down the hall in my high school who had a Wharton shirt on, a uh, sweatshirt on. I'm like, what's Wharton? Like, that's literally how I found out about Wharton, right? Um, and not least of which, because our, our uh, college counselor at my high school, she... Uh, she had it in her mind that she just wanted to channel people to the mo places people were most likely to get into. So that meant like the local state colleges and things like that. And, and so when you went, when I went to her and I'm like, Hey, I want to go to an Ivy league, you know, she was not very helpful. Uh, no very little resources there. Um, and so the, the next best place to get information is you, you went to like these college, um, you know, uh, the yeah, Penn come to town, Yale, Harvard, all these schools come to town and they, you know, would hire, they would organize a, a big meeting in a gymnasium or, or something. And, and, and I, I went to half a dozen of those and they were so boring. I mean, even great schools, right? Harvard, Yale, Princeton, um, but it was terribly boring. I, I remember sitting in a huge uh, hall one time, must've been 500 of us there. And there's somebody at the, at the front drearily reading the most boring speech they were given. You know, and uh, maybe that's the test. You know, if you can pass that boringness, you're prepared for four years. Oh, so. well, it made me not even want to go to college. I'm like, that. That's just so boring. Um, and uh, and Penn was really different. So Penn, uh, they rented out the presidential suite at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills, and they had a ton of alumni there, and they had this great catering there. And so, like, the first hour and a half was just milling and socializing with all these cool people and. Uh, and, and just getting a chance to get to know them and talk and ask questions and eat really yummy food in a beautiful setting. And, and that was going on for almost two hours. And then, and then they're like, Hey, did anybody want to watch a movie about Penn? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. That sounds great. So, you know, we all, uh, went into a, a, a huge room in the suite and they turned on this old projector, um, 
and showed us a 20 minute video about Penn. And I'm like, this is way more cool, super interactive. Uh, I'm done. I'm going. Uh, but the only problem was the early action deadline was two days away. And I, I knew I needed a few more days. So uh, part of the trick to my getting in is I, I cornered the head of admissions who happened to be there that day and uh, somehow uh, convinced them to give me a couple extra days to, uh, to get my early act application uh, in, early action application in. And uh, one thing led to another. Oh, well, that, that is quite the story. And I, and I can see the appeal. I mean, four seasons, presidential suit versus boring gymnasium and and, and boring lecture in a sense. I, I see the appeal in a way. And, and, and I feel most people would not corner someone and ask them for an extension. So you probably stood out there as well. So, all right. Makes sense. Really cool. And you did get in. So congratulations. Phenomenally done. And how was it like? going to campus. And again, many things are going on for you, moving halfway across the country, you're, you're starting college in something completely different. And Penn can be weirdly intimidating in a way where the, like for me at the very least, I know none of the financial terms. I know none of the the, the different, as you said, career paths of consulting and IB and all of those stuff and when I landed in. What was your experience kind of like integrating in that and in your first kind of couple of months on the Penn campus? Yeah, well, my first day at Penn was not a good one. Uh, you, you know, you have to remember my logic was very, very simple. Parents on the left, what's on the right? Hey, their their college recruiting meeting was a lot more fun. Done. Uh, so I show up and and we, so one of the cool things Penn did is they rented the, an airplane. Uh, there's so many of us what? from LA. So I'm like, that's really cool. So we're on our charter jet uh, with a bunch of other uh, kids flying to Penn. But we, we get to the to the airport and then we, you know, we take a shuttle to, to Penn and we're driving by the projects for like what seemed like a half hour. And I'm like, I've never been to Philadelphia. And I'm like, hmm, uh, you know, I hope it gets better because, you know, <laughs> my, my first visual impression was was not particularly uh, uh, intriguing. Um, and then I get to Penn and every guy is wearing the same outfit. Like a lot of people there with family. I'm by myself. There are a lot of people that are family. They're all wearing like this very preppy kind of, you know, dark blue blazer and like mauve blue uh, tie and, uh, you know, penny loafers. And I didn't even own that outfit. I was there in like OP jeans and a flip flops and, you know, and, and so I was just like, whoa, you know, this is a, this is different. And, uh, and it got really bad. Like the first day I just realized, wow, I'm in a different world. Uh, I got hungry. So I went to the food court and uh, <clears throat> uh, I, I, you know, look around. I'm like, oh, pizza. Okay, cool. I'll get a slice of pizza. So I'm waiting in line and uh, I get to the front of the line, this like Italian looking dude, hair slicked back, gold chains, turns around. And he like yells at me. He's like, what do you want? Uh, I'm like, man, these guys are high strung here, you know? <laughs> Uh, obviously food, right? So, uh, so what do you want? I go, I want three slices of pepperoni pizza. And he turns around and yells at, uh, a woman who was there, he was working with, and he goes three pepperoni pies. And I'm thinking that's weird. I don't want pie. I want pizza. And so I immediately like tell him, I'm like, Hey, I, I don't want pie. I want pizza. And then he looks at me like, are you a friggin' moron or are you messing with me? Like it was such a dumb comment to him. He didn't know if I was intentionally messing with him or I was that clueless. Right. And the truth is I was that clueless. Um, 
And, and I heard some people behind me kind of laughing. And finally this guy like tapped me on the shoulder. He's like, you know, Hey, just, just so you know, like that pizza pie, same thing. Like, I'm like, Oh, okay. So and I now felt like the dumbest person on the planet. Uh, first day at Penn, I couldn't even order a slice of pizza. <laughs> so, uh, a lot of things to learn. You know, I thought down was a direction, not a necessary winter piece of apparel. Um, I had to learn how to walk, right? Like where I grew up in LA, it was like 85 degrees all year round. And so I had to learn how to walk on ice, uh, which was a totally new skill for me. Uh, so a lot of, a lot of fun, new things that, that first year at Penn. When was the time you really started feeling like, I, I wouldn't say integrated into the Penn community, but when was the first time you started really seeing how the things that you, you were learning were relevant to you as a person? We know now in hindsight that, that you went down the finance route and that turned out enormously successful for you. But obviously, like, like, like Penn is, as you said, a whole world by itself. When did you start feeling that you were becoming part of this world slowly, if you ever did? Yeah, so I uh, I had a lot of fun my first two years, but I also felt um, uh, I don't want to say alienated, but I felt uh, I, I didn't feel connected to to Penn and Wharton in the way that I would later. Um, and part of that was academic, right? Like <clears throat> they made us take uh, our first year what yeah they called it like management one hundred and one. It was really like remedial English. Like they realized Wharton kids are good at numbers and sucked at writing. And so like they made us all take this like stealth writing class, um, which we probably <laughs> needed. Uh, but it was really boring. It was like, hey, here's 14 theories on how to manage people. And I, I had had some experience managing people from my, my jobs in high school. And, and, I, and I had trouble reconciling or even getting excited about all these 14 theories compared to kind of the, the visceral reality of what it was really like working with people. And, um, and, you know, 14 theories versus six versus two, it just didn't like, at some point I'm, I'm not interested in like theory number 13, you know? Um, and, and same with, uh, accounting, you know, um, cost accounting was not really interesting to me. Um, uh, financial accounting important, uh, but you know, cost accounting was just like brutal, you know, again, like, Hey, here's umpteen ways to account for widgets or intercompany transfer pricing. And I'm like, I don't own a bunch of widgets. I don't care, you know, like, and, and, and why do we need four methods as opposed to like two, you know? Um, so I, it just, it didn't really excite me. I wasn't enthralled with that aspect of the coursework yet. Um, so I ended up taking a year off. I, I left Wharton for a year to study martial arts and a healing art in Japan. And then when I came back is when I really, kind of fell in love with finance and, and uh, really got um, deeply integrated into Wharton and to Penn. And um, uh, yeah, my last two years were, were a blast. No, very cool. And you glossed over this in like one sentence, but you took a year off to go study martial arts. And first of all, why, how, what was this decision like? And, and, and tell me that story in a sense. <laughs> Like you can't just say that in one sentence. Go ahead, yeah. Well, yeah, I've always been as a kid uh, fascinated by martial arts. You know, from uh, uh, you know, as a little kid, I'd watch you know Bruce Lee and his movies, and um, and then uh, you know, just been exposed to um, 
rough play, you know, with the boys wrestling and, you know, and I was never like the biggest kid. So I was always fascinated with like, Hey, how can a little guy, uh, you know, come out on top. And, um, I also, there, you know, there's an Asian community, a vibrant Asian community in California. I grew up in LA and, uh, started studying uh, a Japanese martial art and started doing a lot of reading, a lot of Eastern philosophy, um, and uh, reading about Zen and the you know mindset of some of Japan's um, kind of more famous martial artists and swordsmen, and I got really um, intrigued by uh, by these characters because they they would fight these like fight till death um, uh, duels and and they were supremely calm. Like they, they spent a lot of time cultivating the inside, not just like the outside. And it was one of those weird things where like the more I read, the less I understood. So I started to get kind of irritated. I'm like, you know, the more I read, the more I should understand it. But I would, I would just come up with more interpretations, like these really like deep statements that you could read and interpret like 50 different ways. I'm like, I have no idea. Like what, what's the, the right way, so to speak, or what am I supposed to get out of this? So I started to become intrigued with the idea of, um, getting some coaching or, you know, getting an experience that, that could help me kind of get some clarity on some of that stuff. And also at the same time, I was super bored at, at Penn, right? The first two years I was like cost accounting. I mean, gosh, the other like class I just hated was, you know, statistics 101 and 102. Statistics, super powerful, super important, really interesting, but couldn't have been taught in a more boring coma inducing way. Uh, it was just horrible. Oh, that's my next class lined up. Oh no! <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm sorry to hear. Yeah, it's just so boring. So I, I, I started to think, oh man, maybe it'd be fun to go take a you know, year off, and uh, <clears throat> or do a year abroad. But then I'm like, yeah, but Penn's expensive, and I don't want to spend like all that money to go to Penn and end up being like in Europe or Asia studying American history. You know, like that didn't or it taking an English. It just didn't make sense. So. I'm like, what if I just take my, you know, design my own year abroad? And uh, I started started doing that. And that's what I ended up doing. Okay. That is a very, like, extreme way to think, you know what, if they're not going to give me the experience that I want, I'm going to go and, and live with monks and, and, and try that out. This is a photo from your time there, I'm, I, I think, right? So tell, Yeah, so tell I was lucky enough to uh, my homestay mother, uh, was friendly with one of the most well-known Zen monks at the time who was on TV all the time. And he'd written a bunch of books and, um, and he's the gentleman right in the center uh, above like front center <clears throat> uh, known as Gozen Sama. And, uh, and so I, you know, I, I, I described to her what I wanted to do and she was a very spiritual and very deep person and so she's like, Hey, I know this guy, let's, let's go meet him and see if, uh, maybe he'll, he'll let you apprentice there. So one thing led to another. And the next thing you know, I'm in front of like this famous Zen master talking to him for like a half hour. I'm pretty sure he didn't understand a word I said. I definitely did not understand a word he said. Um, and the questions he was asking were really difficult. I mean, things that would be hard for me to answer in English. And so after an hour of, you know, uh, pretty incompetently answering his questions in Japanese that was questionable at best and having completely soaked through all my clothes with kind of nervous sweat. Um, our meeting ended 
And then uh, I found out a few days later that uh, that was, you know, he was interviewing me to, you know, and decided he was going to offer me um, the opportunity to, to be an official Zen monk apprentice at this really famous Zen monastery where he was the head abbot. Um, and, uh, and that's what I did. And so that, that was a, a picture of some ceremonial thing we did. And, um, uh, you know, in, in our traditional garb. So let me get this straight. You're like, you know what? I'm going to organize my year, my, my, my essential year abroad. You, you pick a homestay. So happened the person who, who's hosting you is like, I know this Zen monk, you go for a meeting, which you didn't know was a meeting. And then now you you're a zen monk apprentice what does being a zen monk apprentice entail i, I cannot even wrap my head around it in a sense yeah and, and and i had no idea what it did uh so i was like a complete screw-up uh monk and and their their culture is you know zen monks are busy they're in purposeful like they have a very set schedule and a lot of things going on and I was clueless. I didn't understand the language well. I had no idea what like the, the business of, of Zen was and what I was supposed to be doing. And everything they did had a way of doing it. Like if you were taking the rags and cleaning the concrete floors, they had a way of doing it, of, of course, which I didn't know. And so I was constantly doing things wrong and getting yelled at uh, and, and, and all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, but, you know, look, part of the part of the Zen life um as a monk, it's just around the daily basics of living, right? So cleaning, uh, things that need to happen in running the monastery, uh, cooking, eating, cleaning, you know, just the basics of day-to-day -day life. And amidst that, there would be uh, some lectures from some of the senior monks there. There would be ceremonies which were done essentially to um, entertain and encourage the uh, inner reflection of people who are going to that monastery to to pray or just to to find a, a, a peaceful place. Um, and 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 in Japan, a lot of people will go to these monasteries. They'll they'll pay money for to to essentially get like a like a, a plaque that 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 has something written on it for something they want. It could be good health, could be you know good fortune or something. And and then they'll. Uh, They'll, they'll go and they'll listen to the monks do these kind of chanting routines, you know, no different than like Gregorian chants in Europe, um, uh, but, but chanting. And so we would spend hours every day chanting, um, you know, and, and to support and encourage the prayers of, of the people who are going there to the monastery. And um, if you go back to that picture, uh, what's funny is every once in a while, there'd be like two or three of us doing these things. And you'd have like a, so most people who came during the week would be like older people who didn't work anymore because um, they had the time. And so they would be there and they'd be watching us kind of at first, just mindlessly kind of watching us do our, our chanting. And then they would look at me. And then sometimes you'd have people like figure out that, oh, he's, he's not Japanese. Whoa, he might be a foreigner, you know? And then, and it was really funny. You could tell when that happened because they'd be like, like, like really like kind of like elbowing their friend, be like, Hey, 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 you know? Uh, and, uh, it, uh, it was pretty funny when, when they realized that, but there are a lot of people that, that didn't, you know, when we were in full, full guard. So. <laughs> they didn't realize that. Okay. Now I'm going to go back to the picture and which one is you in the picture? I'm trying to like, you gotta find me. Where am I? Okay. That, that is very stressful. I'm always terrible at these things. Yeah. I'm going to give up. Uh, can you, 
Like, come on, identify. Like, where am I? So I'm, I'm right. I, I uh, if you go dead center, mm-hmm. uh, 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 like the the main guy, and you kind of go up uh, a few people from him, and a few to the right. Uh, you'll you'll see me there with uh, a plain black robe and my hands clasped one over the other standing to the stage left of a guy with his glasses on Um, left this is you no so I uh, I don't know how to point to it but uh, but if you're looking at it I'm I'm, if if, uh, I'm to the right there we'll follow Uh, the directions okay yeah. Very, I can Crazy. see how they, they couldn't tell. All right, all right, makes sense. And this is a very interesting experience and probably the furthest removed from finance that I can think of in a sense. Like if I had oh. to think finance and the exact opposite of it, I would say Zen monk in a way, especially well, with well, your... Well, Uh, every couple of days, um, I had huge, gigantic beach towels at Penn. You know, there, uh, my first night when we got to the bath, um, the guy gives me like a small piece of cloth and he goes, hey, here's your wash rag. I'm like, cool, where's my uh, towel? And he looked at me again with that same look that the Italian guy at the pizza joint looked at me with like, that is your towel. I'm like, oh, Okay. You know, so you, you learn how to like, you know, you kind of essentially dab it on you and you squeeze out the water and dab it on you and squeeze out the water. And, uh, you know, that's crazy. like out of a movie. OK, like very crazy. crazy. And, and again, furthest thing you could think of from Ivy League, Penn, Finance, Wharton, Ivy. And then you have all of these things, which is like the most the 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 the. The literal, if we're back to the theme of opposites, the literal opposite in a way. How did like what were the main things that you that this you took away from this experience that you would say have helped you kind of or, or that were most helpful in your career or, or or your journey afterwards in this world of finance, in, in kind of the work that you did afterwards? Well, I'd say two things. So one thing was just the um, you know, one of the lessons I learned in there that I've relearn several times is that no matter what people are wearing, no matter where you're meeting them, um, people are people. And, and, you know, I, I saw that, that humanity of the good and the bad, you'll find that anywhere. You'll find that in the C-suite in a fortune 500 company. You'll find that in a Zen monastery. Um, and the other thing is that, um, that I found very helpful is the Zen practice of learning to be present. So uh, one of the kind of standout memories I have is one day we were uh, washing dishes uh, one evening and one of the monks dropped a bowl and it shattered. And at a practical level, like who cares, right? You know, it happens, pick it up, throw it away. Uh, It wasn't a valuable bowl. It was just a regular bowl. Um, The Zen master happened to be walking by uh, the hall at that moment. And so he opened up the, the rice screen doors, the shoji, opened it up, came in and bitched us out. He was pissed. And he guess why? Because dropping the ball would meant your mind was somewhere else in, the, in kind of doing that. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. He, like, well, if there's something more important than washing dishes, 
then right now you should be giving that your attention. But if at some point washing and drying a bowl becomes important enough in your life, then do that and be present to that. And, and, and I think there's, um, I mean, we can spend an hour on it, but there's, there's huge value, especially today in learning to be present more than ever. We are distracted by a gazillion devices, a gazillion demands, um, whether those are external or internal things that I want, things that I want to do or, or feelings that I am experiencing and the ability to reground and just breathe, I think is, is profoundly impactful. Today, I read that uh, in our, our youth, 20 years, uh, 20 year olds and younger, there's an extraordinarily high rate of depression and anxiety. One out of three. Yeah, it's, I heard it's two, more like two out of three. And if you look at the older adults, well, we've been losing our shit for the last two years straight, right? I mean, the, the world's been kind of just at each other uh, for several years now. Um, so the in the face of that, being able to be grounded and breathe and, and focus on what you can control and to be present, I think is so important to mental health. Because otherwise, it's, it's human to begin to worry about, well, what if this and what if that and and, and there's no end to that, right? That rabbit hole is infinitely deep. And, and, and all of us need a few minutes or hours a day where we can just kind of exhale and just be, and just um, be with ourselves in a quiet, peaceful way um, to balance out all the craziness the rest of the day. And there's something really powerful about being present to what you are doing in the moment. Not only are you going to get much, much better at whatever you're doing, if you're doing it with intentionality and presence, but it also has this very clarifying emotional and intellectual impact on you because you're, you know, you're, you're getting rid of a lot of the noise. And, and, and I think that, that more than ever, um, that's something we all need. And, and, um, and so whether it's breathing or a practice of intentionality, uh, whatever your method is, it's important that each of us explore and find something we can use in our daily life to help us reground when, when we're needing that. Um, other than binge eating, drinking, drugs, um, you know, a variety of outlets to try to kind of deaden the, deaden the anxiety, uh, which we all know. You know, those those things don't work. Very beautifully said and, and, and very, very, I would say, important as for, for, for the current world that we're experiencing and the many, many daily, almost uh, little explosions that we see around the world. So either after today's interview, you will have lots of people signing up to go to Japan or you'll have lots of people in fear of doing dishes from now on. But uh, well, well, so, uh, it, you know, if you put yourself in the mind of a samurai mm -hmm. who uh, regularly confronted life or death when you had challenges on the street with, with live blades that are as sharp as a razor blade, think about the potential for noise in that person's mind. 
What happens if I get cut? What happens if I die? What happens if the person moves here, does this? What happens if I slip while I'm, you know, cutting? I mean, all sorts of what happens, what's going to happen to my family? What's going to happen to my kids? Like infinite number of what if, what if, what if negative fears, worries, right? And all of those take away from your maximum efficiency and capability as a fighter in that moment. Not one of those worries helps you. You need to be free to react and move unhindered. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, that's where I think a lot of that practice came from. Um, And our feelings of anxiety can sometimes feel like life or death. Right. I mean, and at the extreme level, people take their lives sometimes because they can't deal with the level of anxiety. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, uh, there's different ways to do it. One really cool thing that, you know, we don't need to talk about, but, but, um, if you're curious and you're searching for a fun, uh, something to experiment with, check out Wim Hof, otherwise known as Iceman. Um, he was much less known when I first started, um, uh, using his training methods around breathing and cold water training, five or six years ago. Uh, but I spend time every morning, uh, sometimes a couple times a day, uh, doing intentional breathing exercises. And, uh, he's got a great, very accessible, inexpensive online training program. Uh, he's also a living example of what you can achieve. Um, but you know, there's, there's, uh, uh, so that might be a fun thing to check out if, if has nothing to do at all with Japan. Um, and, and I can't, (laughs) credit for it but he's a really cool resource that is available for anybody that wants to explore that that kind of stuff a little bit more no i have so many questions and, I, and i'm definitely gonna meander like like just a little bit and, and distract because you like like ugh, you, you you've just made me too curious but you also like your kids today you 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 brought them into the world of martial arts as well i think i have some pictures um oh of you and them and, and, and going for these tournaments and, and going for these trainings and all of that. Why is it so important for, for or from your point of view as a parent that kids get absorbed into these kind of things? At the not, age just kid, I, not just kids, but adults too. So I, I think it's, uh, um, there's a couple things. So one, uh, one of the things that we learned in Brazilian jiu-jitsu is dealing with adversity in physically intimate situations. I mean, when we're, when you're rolling on the ground, if there's somebody who's on top of me that weighs 220 pounds and smothering me, um, you know, it, it's easy to, to panic or to, uh, you know, start immediately being triggered. And, and so I think one of the great benefits is you learn to how to keep breathing, how to, um, maintain your own posture internally and physically, uh, in a way that brings you peace and confidence. Um, and, and I think that's really important because sometimes when we are physically confronted with something, uh, it's, it's amazing how easy it is for people to get triggered. And I think it's a great asset to be able to be calm and, and confident and, and, and have a framework for, um, for that kind of a situation. And that's especially true, I think, in today's world where a lot of people are growing up not having tough conversations face to face. And so, you know, whether it's learning how to have face-to-face conversations or learning how to deal with situations, you know, that are, that are physical. The other thing that's really great about martial arts, and I'll just speak to, to BJJ in particular, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, 
is it was designed for people that aren't the biggest, aren't the fastest, aren't the strongest. And at 51, that means me increasingly compared to the 20 or 30 year olds that I'm training with. And one of the really profoundly impactful lessons that I get um, from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is the power of technique. So when somebody is uh, has more strength than you, learning to not resist strength on strength, but to be curious and, and know that there are techniques that do not require strength. They just require some self-awareness and you got to learn to move you. What can I do? What can I do to change? Rather than trying to control the person, it's well, what can I do? How can I move? How can I, you know, because I can control me. I can't control somebody else. And, and that's a really profoundly uh, powerful lesson. And one of the things that's very, uh, that anybody who's trained in BJJ can relate to and, and laugh about is, you know, sometimes we get, we get caught and stuck in a position and, and, you know, what we're trying is not working. And like, oh, how do you ever get out of this position? And then you ask like a really good black belt, hey, how do you deal with this situation that again, to you felt like impossible, everything you thought you could do not working. And when you get the opportunity to ask that kind of question to a true master in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, the answer always just makes you want to laugh because right there in the middle of that struggle of this, what seemed like a physically impossible situation to get out of or deal with, was one slight adjustment, one slight move that did not require strength, that instantly transformed that whole situation, created the opportunity for you not only to get free, but to then reverse it and pin the person and now be in control again um, or come out on top. And time and time again, it, it just, you know, it's what's I think one of the addictive things about it is you, you you're, you see these situations that feel so untenable, like, how am I going to get out of this? And you try, and it's not working. And then you, you get taught that technique, which just like, oh, that's it. It was there the whole time. And I didn't, like, that was so easy, you know? Uh, and and, it's, and, and I, I feel like in life, that's really powerful. In business, there's going to be times where things are not working or we're facing a challenge or a, a problem, uh, a roadblock of some kind. And force on force is, is usually not the right answer. And if we can channel our inner creativity and curiosity, usually, not 100% of the time, but 99.9% .9 of the time, if we're curious, there is a way without the use of force to be able to transform that situation into one that is now favorable for us. Um, and I think just training that, learning that, seeing that, realizing that, allows us to take it outside of the training gym and, and realize and, and be, kind of maintain that curiosity in life so that when we're facing that breakdown, when we're facing that really ins what feels like an insurmountable challenge, going, okay, uh, where is it? There is a technique here somewhere. There's something I can do. What can it be? And it may not be obvious. Like sometimes in jujitsu, your first instinct in terms of direction to move or thing to do is, is wrong. And, and sometimes the, the, the possibility was created by doing something completely counterintuitive and in a way that just like opened everything up. So, you know, I think having a physical reference for something like that can be powerful in an analogous way and inspire us to be curious and inspire us to seek technique and not force on force 
as a means to getting through the challenges that life uh, presents us. No, that's incredible. And, and definitely, I didn't know that there was so much philosophy that, that is so applicable, as you said, to the working world, to the world that we have. You know, instead of Wharton tricking people into going for, for their writing classes and stat classes, they should <laughs> produce a Brazilian jiu-jitsu class. And, and, and I think that would, would, would better help them to tackle these issues than the 14 ways of managing people that, they, that, that we currently think about. Tell us a couple, one or two examples of how you've seen this in your life. Because again, finance, you've been on Wall Street, one of the most stressful careers out there where these things probably you have to apply it on the spot in a very high tense situation. Yeah, you know, um, uh, I, I think curiosity is an, an imagination is invaluable because very often uh, the the best answer is not just work harder, do more, you know, incrementally more, faster, more efficient, da, 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 da. like those are good things. But when you think about breakouts, breakout opportunities, whether it's in finance or it's in art, it often has to do with being different, mm -hmm. right? Uh, People talk about the dress that Lady Gaga wore, her infamous meat dress, right? That was really different. She is different um, and memorable and has created huge opportunities. A great artist and on top of that, different. She wasn't just trying to be like every other female singer in her generation. Madonna. Madonna was different. She did things that, that, that kind of shocked people that were just different. Um, or Elvis, right? The new movie out about Elvis, right? Elvis was different. He wasn't like every other singer at the time or the Beatles were different. Um, you know, so every, you know, when you think about uh, culture or even think about like uh, what Elon Musk has done with Tesla, right? Cars were kind of evolving. You know, the next car was a little bit faster, maybe a little bit more energy efficient or a little bit whatever. Um, and then he came out with Tesla, which was radically different. Right. It was, it was just like completely different. And it's really no surprise that, you know, he is a gazillionaire um, and that he has found great success in that. Because, again, he was willing to be radically different. Um, and so uh, in, I, you know, I, I would just encourage all of you who are, are with us today to in whatever area of life you're interested. So it could be about writing too, right? Like you're a novelist, you want to write a book, um, you know, uh, like Harry Potter, right? The story of Harry Potter was different when it came out, right? There's something unique to it. Um, and so whatever you're doing, uh, I would encourage you to have um, the courage to explore what it is you want to do and explore things that are off path a little bit um, and be willing to try. And the first time may not work, right? When you think about uh, uh, J.K. Rowling, Rowling, I can't pronounce her last name, but, you know, the the lady that wrote um, the whole Potter, you know, Harry Potter series, she was turned down umpteen times before that got picked up. And now she's a friggin' billionaire. And like these, these, the stories have been like all over, right? Um, Disney you know, had trouble getting funding in the beginning. 
Um, people thought cartoons, uh, you know, crazy. Mouse, a cartoon about a mouse, uh, that's not going to work, right? Uh, you know, and there's so many, so many examples of people that um, did something different, ultimately resonated, became incredibly successful. But in the beginning, you know, when they first introduced their idea, the world was not super receptive. They were like, hey, cool, great, great idea. Here's all the money. Go make it happen. Right. Very often there's a, a period where you've got to stick with that. Um, and I my prayer to you is that if you have something you're passionate about, that you you find the staying power to stick with it, um, you know, while still listening to your crowd and your audience and your tribe. I mean, don't stick with something that's not working forever. Right. At some point, you have to be willing to adjust and change and experiment. But but have the courage to try something different. Because it's often the, you know, the next big hit, whether it's in business or art or culture, is very often something that's different, that's refreshing, not just a, another version of the same thing. Yeah, at least, I, at least I'll stay a little motivated in, in whatever it is I'm doing. And I'm sure a lot of our audience will take that to heart as well. One of the things that I remember from one of our first few conversations was that you, you were sharing about how when you go even for the simplest of meetings, in a sense, you have to say something that gets you to stand out. You have to be able to be thoughtful and insightful and observant enough to, to convey some, a sense uh, or, or bring out something in the person you're speaking to so that they can see the value in what you're doing. They can see that difference in a way. Because many times we, we have a, something that, that we're passionate about, something that's great, something that, that has its own value in it. But to bring that out in others has always been a little tricky in a sense. To get other people to see the value in that difference has always been a bit tricky. You, you're an expert in this. You advise startups. You, you work with lots of people in this. For for everyone else trying to get others to see the value in their difference, what would you recommend they do? Where do they start knowing? Well, I think I'm just okay at it. I'm constantly working at it. Um, and, and it's an area that I continue to invest time to get better at. Um, and for me, it's been a... Uh, a journey where earlier in my career, if I had a deal and I was looking for investors, I was very focused on the deal, what made it a good deal and analyzing it and convincing myself first and then convincing other people, hey, you should invest in this. And the problem is that most people don't care about the details of what you're doing, no matter what your profession is, right? Doesn't matter whether you're a dentist uh, or whether you're a musician or whether you're a wealth manager, um, they want the benefits of what you're doing. They're hiring you so they don't have to know all the details and all that stuff. And so, you know, it's been an evolution where uh, on a good day, I'm spending more time listening to people. And from with my business hat on, I'm in particular listening for pain. I want to understand what the prospect's pain points are, what their worries, their fears, their pain points are. I'll then think about like, hey, how can I help them? Do I have anything I can do or use to support them or help them? And if yes, then it's as simple as going, hey, well, you know, uh, this is what we do. I can help you with that if you want. And if it's a real pain point for them, like, yes, please. Why? Not, not because I'm talking about our company or our product or it's because I'm helping them solve their problem that they told me is important to them. And that creates connection 
and that helps move things forward. Um, if I'm approaching prospects with a focus on me and my background and how we do things at Whitwell and Company and, and the, why this product is really good and da, 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 nobody will care. And that's a really, really, really a lot of work and a hard sales job to try to get somebody to care because people care about their own feelings, their own pains, their own situation first and foremost. And so I think that when we're on our A game, you know, it, it's okay to have self-interest. Like, hey, I want to grow my business. I want to serve more people. That's okay. But the most powerful way to do that, in my opinion, from my experience, is to make it about them. Find out what their needs are, their pain points are, and then just help them. And, and, and that is by far the easiest way to do it. And when you're helping them, you're creating connection. And when there's connection, now they care. Now they'll listen. So now you can call them and be like, hey, you know, I was thinking about your, your situation. And uh, I see some opportunities on some things that may be helpful for you from a tax planning standpoint or whatever. They'll listen. They care because we have that connection. But that connection was forged because we listened. And we, they got that we got what their actual pain points were. And because they get that we get how they're feeling, then when we propose a solution or how we can help them, they're receptive to it because they know what they're going through. And they, they are confident that we understand that this is an issue for them right now. Um, and, and so, um, you know, I think that when we can be, even when we have an agenda, because everybody's got an agenda, we all want to do certain things. If we can start from a position of listening, curiosity again, and understanding people's pain points, it can be a very powerful uh, way to connect. I'll give you an example that may be relevant for all of you, uh, you know, graduating maybe this year, maybe in a couple of years. Where this really applies is to your job search. And I call it the stinky turd problem. Okay. okay. Why? <laughs> you want a job. What's the traditional path? Like we talked about being like looking at different things or like just being on the standard path. So what's the standard path look like? You're looking for a job. What do you do? You get a resume, you get a cover letter. And then what do you do? You spend hours doing what? I've never looked for a job. I think you network. I assume you go for you. You go on LinkedIn. You send out right. emails. You, yeah. right. you do all that stuff. You do all that stuff. And on LinkedIn, you do all these online applications and it feels really good. You're doing all this stuff. But the results are very often what? Yeah. Underwater. <laughs> yeah, right? a, little, a little disappointing, yeah. So, and this is true whether you're a student getting your first job or you've been out for a couple of years and you're transitioning. The best advice I have for you is this. Find out what you want to do. Get in front of a decision maker. And if you have even five minutes, your goal is to create a connection with them that then allows you to have another meeting with them, Right. But why do people hire people? Like if you're meeting with the decision maker at a company in an industry you're excited about, why is that person going to hire you? And the answer has nothing to do with you. What are they going to do? Well, they're hiring you if you can make them look better or if you can solve a problem for them or if you can create more value than it costs to pay you to begin with. Otherwise, there's no need to bring you on board, right? Hey, if I pay you hundred grand, but you bring in a half million dollars in value, that's smart business, right? Or, hey, I got a big 
problem over here and I hire you to come on board and solve that problem, which makes my life easier. Right. Good, good, good reason to bring you on board. But uh, no one's going to bring you on board because they care about your career or they, you know, uh, they're really interested in who you are and all that stuff. That's baloney. Right. People make decisions based on their own pain points. So the best thing you can do is get in front of somebody and, and listen intently about their pain points. Find the stinky turd that is on that decision maker's desk. And the easiest way to get hired is to say, hey, I can make that stinky turd go away. Hire me and it disappears. How do you know that? How, how, how do you identify? And, and I'm getting, I'm, I'm sure it's not Listening. just. Listen, if, right? if you have five minutes with a key decision maker, yeah. the fastest way to lose interest is to start talking about you. Oh, I got to work and I do this, I do this, I do that. Who cares? Mm-mm. It's lonely at the top. CEOs don't get to bitch and moan about how tough their job is with the rank and file. Because the oh. rank, and fi- rank and file will be like, screw you. You make 10 times what I do. Life must suck. Yeah, whatever. Oh. Your job's not at risk. Shove it. Right? It's, it's lonely at the top. So you go in there. And you start asking them about, hey, what's the worst thing about your job? What's the one thing that you do regularly that you wish you had a magic wand, you could wave and disappear that recurring task, right? What is the greatest uh, roadblock right now to to your business doubling in size in the next year? What is the, you know, I mean, that's what you learn from asking those kind of questions is very valuable to you. Right. If, and, and, and the biggest trap they could do is, hey, tell us a little bit about you, Harsha. Oh, well, let me tell you about me. Kill it right there. Right. You'd be like, hey, look, I appreciate the, the, the question, but I'm here to listen until I have a clear understanding of your pain points. If you say that, they'll be like, what? <laughs> and you'll be like, look, let me be transparent with you. Here's my strategy. I'm graduating. I want a job. My thesis is if I walk in and just start telling you about how I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread, even though I have no experience, know nothing about your business, that you're not going to be like, oh, wow, that's amazing. Let me hire you on the spot. Instead, my thesis is everybody's got a stinky turd on their desk somewhere. And if it's a stinky enough turd that's problematic enough, and if I can spend a couple days or a week thinking about how I can leverage my background to get rid of that and to make your life easier, and can have a credible, specific plan on how I think I'm going to do that, that even if that plan isn't perfect and might need a little bit of tweaking from you, given you're, you've got a lot more experience in this business than I do, that that's a heck of a lot more compelling way to engage a conversation with you about joining your company. Because I'm crazy about your company. I love what you do. But that's why I'm asking you about pain points. And I don't want to spend five minutes, even three minutes, even a minute boring you with my background because the, I think there's a lot more value that I can get from this meeting if I walk away with a clear understanding of your pain points so I can then spend the next week or two figuring out how, if I might be able to help address those. And maybe I can't, but I want to walk away. That's my goal. This meeting is not to sell you on why the greatest things in sliced bread, even though I might be, uh, I want to walk away with a clear understanding of your pain points. So back to you. If you say that, they'll be like, whoa, right? So you download it, you understand their problem. And as soon as you understand it, you'd be like, look, thank you. We, you know, would it be okay with you if after I spent a week really deep diving on this issue, come back 
and schedule a 10 minute meeting to share with you some thoughts I have about how I might be able to make that, you know, that stinky turd disappear off your desk. You know, would, would you be open to that? And I'm only going to book that meeting with you if I feel I've got a credible, compelling plan to share with you. They'll be like, yeah, I'd do that. Right. Who wouldn't want to be like, yes. No, I, I <laughs> How could they say no? Yeah. Right. So, so then you come back next time. And again, you haven't told them about you, which is going to make them more curious about you because you're the only person in the world that's not talking about themselves with them. Right. And by the way, who else doesn't talk about themselves with them? When they're meeting other Fortune 500 CEOs or whatever, they're already like, hey, I'm a stud. I'm a Fortune 500 CEO. They don't need to like sell themselves to everybody, right? They enjoy being the kingmaker. So you're automatically putting yourself in the right tier of people by being somebody that's simply not talking about you all the time, right? And everybody else in their organization is saying, hey, I need more resources. I need more people. I need more headcount. I need this. I need this from you. I need you to show up at this meeting. I need you. And you might be one of the few voices in their ecosystem that's going, hey, what's your biggest problem? I'm going to help you get rid of it. And who doesn't want people like that in their life? Right? So uh, a totally and radically different approach is much more powerful than knocking on the door being like, hey, can I tell you about myself and why I'm super impressive? And I went to this great school and I come with this great background. I've got all these really well-rounded interests. But meanwhile, that executive has like 10 fires burning they need to be addressing. And at best, they're just trying to like, they're thinking about that while they're pretending to listen to you. And they're just counting down the minutes until they can politely ask you to get the hell out of their office and they get back to that work. So, uh, you know, listening, asking questions, understanding people's pain points, really tremendous power in that. And so when you're in the in the job search process, I, I think there's it's invaluable to to really understand what the decision. Here's the other interesting thing. So you, people get lulled into this false sense of security or false sense of productivity by going online and filling out all these job applications on LinkedIn, right? Let me tell you a secret, okay? A, the best jobs, the most interesting jobs, the job you want is not advertised. And it's always available. If you go talk to a CEO of a company that's got a, you know, a bunch of people working for them, at any given time, 100% guaranteed, that CEO wants to fire somebody or maybe two people on their team, 100%. But why haven't they fired him already? Because they can't find it. Oh, you're, that's smart, huh? A replacement, they hate that person. They don't want more drama. They don't want more work to do because they know if that person leaves and it's not a smooth transition, more shit falls on your desk. And, and, to, and, 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 and maybe things are tense. And so like, if they haven't told them they're gonna fire him, they can't certainly can't put, start looking for another replacement. Right. That would be too awkward. So there's a lot of jobs that actually exist in reality, but aren't advertised. So you walk in, you're five years out of, out of pen. You walk in and you have that stinky turd conversation and you discover that you have some superpowers that can make that turd disappear. And the CEO gets that you're hired. And that other person is fired same day. <laughs> Right. And, and, and so it, it, you know, uh, purely reacting to what's publicly available 
is a bad strategy because a you're competing with 300 of the people that did the same thing you did that day. And you're, you know, you're, you're, you're hoping that the HR person is going to read through 300 resumes ain't going to happen. So maybe you get lucky in the computer sorting mechanism of, of the AI running that their, their search again, it's completely beyond your control or you can get in front of that decision maker. Even if it's five, 10 minutes, if you're asking the right questions, you will provoke such intense curiosity that they will be happy to meet with you again. And you'll stand out tremendously from anybody else. Um, and so just realize that if you want to work at a company and there's nothing being advertised about it, that doesn't mean a thing. I guarantee you at that moment, that CEO would love to fire a couple people, but you won't, the, you won't even know about that until you first get in there and ask them about what their pain points are and their pain points are related to what's not being done well by those people, right? So you come in, you know how to solve it, things happen. So uh, I think it can be a very, very powerful technique uh, when, if you're looking for a job, a powerful technique if you're looking for new clients. Um, and again, it's all about the other person and listening loudly to find out not what you think the most important problem should be, but what they're experiencing today as their biggest problem. I'm listening for the pain. No, I like it. I like it. Very, very, very necessary for, I think, a lot of people who are not just looking for jobs, but pitching projects, something. It's something that I've been trying to do a little bit more since, since I first heard you say it, and that I will take a lot more effort to do after this call in every project that I'm running. But no, very brilliant advice. I have so many questions and uh -huh. I have so many things that I would like to ask you. But unfortunately, I think our time has run out for today's episode. So I'll just ask you one in a sense. You are an extremely, I would say, EQ person. And I'm sure IQ is high as well. But but you seem to get these nuances in people, in 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 in, in kind of internal struggles in a way in, in how you approach and look at situations and i think that first of all this is probably one of the most fun conversations i've had with the financial planner i'll just say um and i think that that is a skill that that more people need to know about uh, need to be able to develop in a sense and and especially when when we are in, we are always pushed to look at things logically look at things in a in a very process oriented way that part of connecting to people, of being able to find that intrinsic motivation to, to, to meander through adversity kind of dies a little bit, especially through as we grow up in a way. What can we do to keep that alive? What can we do to develop that understanding of people and that understanding of self in a way so that we don't burn out, we don't face these little roadblocks, we don't end up just doing the repetitive, boring, draining tasks that, that eventually make depressed and critically unhappy with life? I, I have no idea what the answer is, but I, I, I think it starts with having the intention to be heart-led, right? So um, your favorite song in the whole world comes on, your heart like skips a beat, you know, you're like, oh, or, or you meet somebody that, that you think is just amazing or beautiful or handsome, uh, your heart goes, oh, right? Or you see uh, a movie that, that tells such a, uh, 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 an amazing story that, again, you're moved. Maybe you're even moved to tears. Um, uh, or a loved one, you know, saying goodbye to a loved one and giving them a hug and, 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 and shedding a tear of joy 
uh, for times that you spent together. Uh, some of the most powerful human experiences um, are often heart, you know, come from our hearts, right? Not from some robotic process. So uh, I had lost that and then kind of 10, 12 years ago, realized that and I, I made myself a promise, the intention that, that I would begin to live a more heart-led life in business and in my life, in my personal life. And I had no idea what that meant. I'm like, I, it scares me to even say it, being like heart-led in finance, like what the hell does that mean? Um, but I stuck with it and, and a whole bunch of really amazing doors continue to open from that. Um, and so I, I would just encourage you to, to, to make the same commitment to lead, live a heart led life. Um, even if you don't know what it means and even if none of us know what it means and we're all kind of figuring that out as we go, but if that's an important intention of yours and then, then, then hopefully through the day we can kind of tap into that. And, and, and I, I promise you amazing Amazing things will come from that. And, and it's not just about heart. We do want to couple that with the rigor of, of study and intelligence and analysis and process. But let's make sure that in the course of that, we don't, don't lose our hearts. You know, I was thinking when I asked that question, what could you possibly say that, that would kind of surpass the, the amazing answers that you gave throughout the interview? But you did it. I'm, I'm, I'm terribly upset that you did, but, but, Phenomenal answer, and, and, and I really do appreciate you being on the show. I think that, as I said, we do we simply do not have enough time to to ask everything that we need and, and draw out all of your experiences. But I'm very grateful for the ones that you shared with us, and and very well, very you know, appreciate you having me on here. And for everybody listening, uh, I want you to uh, put the sticky turd technique to work and send uh, send Harsha your your favorite. Uh, stories that come from that uh, and the results that come from that. And, um, you know, look forward to, to continuing our conversation and big supporter of, of what you've been doing and fun to be here today. Thank you so much. And to everyone, make sure you send that over and, and we appreciate you joining us as well for this conversation. Thank you so much for being our speaker. And with that, I guess our episode for today is drawn to a close. So appreciate everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure if you say you let us know, talk to us, email us, drop it in the comments. And tune in again next Thursday at 10 p.m. ET. Bye. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.